Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour podcast. Your ears do not deceive you. I am not Harriet Minter. My name's Kate and I'm one of the Badass Women's Hour podcast production team. Harriet has had to be away this week. So what we've done, instead of you missing out on empowering, honest and enlightening stories from the Badass Women's Hour, we thought we would get together some of the best bits over the last few months. So in this episode, you're going to hear Harriet speaking to social media star Florence Given about how women should be seen and see themselves. Matt Haig talks about social media and our mental health. And Alexandra Wilson joins Harriet to discuss the racism she experienced in British courts. First up, Florence. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. Over the past couple of years, Florence Given's Instagram account, challenging beauty standards and getting us all to see ourselves differently, has taken Instagram by storm. And it's resulted in her new book, Women Don't Owe You Pretty, uh, all about seeing the world through a feminist lens and making it her mission to challenge oppressive attitudes towards women. Our kind of girl, she joins us now. Hi, Florence. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, tell us why that title, Why Women Don't Owe You Pretty. Um, so it's inspired by the quote by Erin McKean, and the quote begins saying, you don't owe prettiness to anyone. And the quote ends, it's a very long quote, um, and the quote ends with saying, prettiness is not the rent you pay to exist in the world as a woman. And this kind of quote, um, it's quite a few years old. I saw it on some Tumblr blog, and it changed my life forever because it forced me to examine the kind of measures that women apply prettiness just to be treated better in society and also how different women depending on uh, their intersections and their identities um, depending on race sexuality uh, whether they're able-bodied whether they're queer whether they're straight all of these things contribute to how much you are expected to perform prettiness and when i talk about performing prettiness i mean anything from wearing makeup doing your hair, wearing a certain type of clothing, shaving your body hair, all of these kinds of things that women do um, just to um, be treated with respect in the world. You said it changed your life. In what way? Um, I think I looked at the stuff I was doing and I questioned whether I was doing it for me or whether I was doing it for the validation that I was desired, not just by men, but by society and people in general. And there's a quote in my book and it says, um, I've used it in my, on, on my Instagram as well, and it says, how much of um, my femininity is genuine and how much of it is a product of patriarchy? You know, I always question how much of my femininity is who I genuinely am and how much of it is a product of growing up in a society that does encourage women to perform a certain way to feel valid. Why is it that in 2020... 
because I'm a, I'm a bit old now. I'm nearly 40 and I've been looking at this stuff for a while and I think I learned it in my 20s. I was like, this is not this is not something I'm gonna, I want to buy into. I've got to think about how I step outside of it. And I hoped that when I was doing that, my legacy would be that the generation below me, or the women of your age, would be like, oh, look, we don't have to do it. And yet, here we are in 2020. Absolutely. No, women still believe in it. Why is that? I mean, it's, it's you know, the, the, whole, the whole reason that we, um, let's take shaving body hair, for example, the whole reason that women shave our body hair is because of a capitalist seed of insecurity. You know, women didn't shave their body hair before the 1920s. Gillette wanted to make a load of money making razors and decided that they were going to put these ads out that encouraged women to shave their bodies. And of course, now we actually pay more for razors because they're pink and anything pink is has like a tax added onto it. So um, there's all of these kind of things. It's like, you know, we, we were never insecure about our body hair until we were told to be insecure about it to make money for people who own large corporations. And I think it's um, I, I can't tell you why it's it's still the way it is. Um, but I think it's, it's definitely uh, time to start challenging these narratives and women like you said women have been doing this for ages but it's it's um it's important that we keep this conversation going because still it's clearly very pernicious and very insidious in the ways that um it's so normalized and we accept it as a given that we're supposed to do these rituals also normalized and in a way that we're rewarded for it because you know one of the things i'm very aware of is and i said i've spent years trying to challenge this idea that as a woman you have to show up looking a certain way in order to be acceptable and yet there are some times where I'm like do you know what it's just easier it's just easier if today I blow dry my hair and I put on a load of makeup and I get my eyelashes done people will be nicer to me I'll get further people will listen to me I'm gonna have an easy I'll get a seat on the bus it'll be an easier day Absolutely. It is a form of survival for a lot of women. You, you, you either you have two choices when you wake up in the morning and you, and you go out into the world. You say, OK, do I show up as my authentic self? Do I show up in a way that I feel comfortable, you know, just going out wearing whatever, not doing whatever to my face or my hair? And, um, you know, the benefit of that is that you don't compromise yourself, but you'll probably be met with unsolicited remarks, um, not the treatment you want and deserve. And you, you'll feel that. That you make you 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 have you have the benefit of being yourself, but also you know that you're not going to be treated as nicely. Or you say, well, instead I could just use the tools around me and pay with prettiness to avoid those unsolicited remarks. You, you either way, yeah. it comes at a cost. So you're either it's at the cost of your authentic self, or it's at the cost of literally the cost of buying mm-hmm. things to make yourself look pretty, and the time and energy that goes into that. Do you think it's easier if, and you know, I've seen your Instagram, I follow you, I think you're absolutely great, but you are a conventionally very attractive young woman. Yeah. Do you think it's easier if, you know, it's, is it easier to stand there and say, oh, actually, you know, I'm not going to shave my legs, I'm not going to put absolutely. on makeup, I'm not going to, if you still look pretty great anyway? Yeah, absolutely. I, um, again, this is where there's so much nuance in my book. I cover all of this. Um, Me being able to grow out my body hair is, in fact, a privilege, even though society at large is still repulsed by it. The fact that I can shave my body hair off and still be considered desirable by a large portion of people is very much a privilege. And although I do experience, um, you know, when I don't perform prettiness and when I do go outside, 
not mm-hmm. performing the extra layers of femininity. Even just by virtue of me being white, people treat me better. And that con- contributes towards um, pretty privilege as well. And even though prettiness is subjective, we do need to acknowledge that society as a whole, our idea of pretty is informed by racial, fatphobic, transphobic, and um, yeah, racial bias. How do you think social media plays into this? Because it's it's interesting to me that you have kind of come through on a platform which both on the one hand massively validates us for showing up and looking a certain way and behaving a certain way and putting a certain filter on it and also at the same time seems to be the home of the kind of revolution against that. Right. Yeah, I think it's it's acknowledging that in an ideal world, again, it's what I said, when you go out into the world, you, you, you make a choice. You say, OK, I can keep my feminist morals or I can acknowledge the system that I'm in and conform um, to a certain degree to if that makes me um, able to get my message across. And the thing is, with my work, it's very bright, it's very colourful and it's very provocative. And my work has to be that way to capture people's attention and then to um, draw them into these very uncomfortable topics. And I think that's what um, I do with my social media. I didn't post a picture of myself for at least a year and a half when I started my Instagram account. It was just all of my illustrations. Um, And then when I started to gain the confidence to articulate myself and talk more about these issues and more about my experiences, um, that's when it resonated with people a lot more because all of a sudden there was a face to it and people were like listening and engaging with me. And I think there's, like you said at the beginning, it's like, how do we navigate these platforms? And I think it's about making it work for you. It's about having boundaries with these platforms. How much content do you consume? Who do you follow? Do they make you feel like crap about yourself? Or do they question, um, do they make you question yourself in in a healthy way? Do they challenge your perceptions and your ideas? And I think um, for women in particular, we are encouraged, um, we are encouraged to put everybody first and I think doing so to have people on social media who are encouraging an alternative narrative to just see that there is another way that you're able to thrive. I think that's great. And especially as social media now is basically the new media full stop for a lot of young people. Um, I think it's important that people are using these platforms to infiltrate with all of these very incredible political ideas. Uh, Florence, if a young woman is listening to this and thinking, well, I hear what you're saying and I buy into it and I I feel that way too. I feel like I'm paying a price to show up and be accepted and I'd much rather just be able to turn up as myself, but I don't know if I can. What advice would you give her? I'd say that that's, that's okay. Like if you don't feel that um, you are able to show up as your authentic self because you know that when you apply these, this is this is the thing, right? It's about choice, but it's about knowing about your choice. It's about the awareness behind your choices. So when you do these things, it's it's about being aware that you're doing it because you know that it's an easier route. And I think it's ridiculous that we judge women who pay for these procedures, sometimes, you know, aesthetic procedures, to fit into the mold when, when they, we know that they're going to be treated better when they do so. So I absolutely do not judge women who quote unquote conform. Um, it's a survival thing. And also I think the roundabout answer to all of this is that it doesn't matter if it's in line with your desires. You know, every time I do something, I ask myself, is this, is this in line with my desires or by doing this, am I going to be denying myself? And if it means that I'm denying myself, am I doing it? 
for a reason because it's for my safety. A lot of the things we do as women are harm reduction, right? When we leave the house, we do certain things with our appearance for harm reduction. We deny our reality or, or we say certain things to people or we lie to, to protect our safety. We deny our reality for harm reduction and that's okay. Florence, thank you so much for joining us and talking to us here on Badassman's Out. It's been great having you. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. You can get in touch on all the socials on at Badass Women's Hour. Do you have a moment in your life which, if you could go back, you would change it? You would do it so, so differently. And you know if you could change that moment, everything would be different. Well, that is the premise of the latest book from our next guest. We are joined by a best-selling author, Matt Haig. Hi, Matt. Hi, Harriet. Nice to be here. Thank you so much for giving us just some of your Saturday evening. Um, the Midnight Library is out in September and it asks the question, uh, what is the best way to live? Give us a little summary of the book itself. Um, yeah, basically, the Midnight Library of the title is this library between life and death where the bookshelves go on forever and it's like a sort of TARDIS-like library. Um, and each book on the shelves is a different version of the protagonist, Nora's life, if she'd have lived it differently. And, and she feels like she's been lived a life full of regret she's had all kinds of things go wrong and so she now finally gets a chance um to live her life and undo her regrets and see if the grass really is greener on the other side what was the inspiration for this because i'm sure we all have those moments i mean as i was asking that question just before we started the interview about is there a moment in your life you wish to go back to i vividly went back to the moment that i wish i could change what was the inspiration or what sparked the thought for this book for you 
Well, I think, you know, I've been relatively public about um, my experience of depression and stuff like that. And for me, my kind of uh, my experience with mental health issues has been like they've often been flavoured with like regret and wishing I'd done things differently and wishing I'd sort of like... Um, I, I don't know, wishing I'd stayed healthier or wishing what whatever. And I you know, if you if you're living in regret, you're just living in the past. And so I wanted to write a book about how you deal with that and how you accept the present, how you accept the sort of imperfect life we have, which I think we you know, mental health issues or not, we all kind of struggle with that, how we mm -hmm. deal with the uncertainty of the present without um yeah, wishing we could have done things differently. I mean, and how do we do that? Because I think particularly at the moment, dealing with the uncertainty of the present is a, an ever-present question for all of us. But actually, it's really hard not to have moments where we look at our lives and think, oh, if only. If we have those moments, how do we bring ourselves back to, well, we can't change it, we must move forward? Well, I think it's understanding that, like, you know, we don't know. We don't know how other people's lives feel. We don't know how um, our own future will feel. We don't know if things would have been better if we'd have done it differently. And actually, you know, very often in our own lives, if we think about the things that we've often very much looked forward to, sometimes it hasn't actually gone how we imagine it's going to be. And very often also, likewise, the things we absolutely dread, very often they're not quite as bad as as we think them to do. So it's just about, um, you know, not to get too um, Buddhist about it. I've been reading a lot about Buddhism recently, but um, it's about embracing the uncertainty of it all. And that's, you know, you know, because uncertainty is a, a word we've used a lot this year, because obviously we live in very uncertain, stressful times. But also uncertainty is a sort of like foundation for hope as well. So it's about understanding that everything is connected so all our worries are connected to all our hopes all our bad times can actually um be intrinsically linked to the good times but just not in ways we can necessarily see at that point in time and yeah just accepting the whole picture um and the whole you know that and that there is probably no perfect life so it's about embracing the imperfection we've got in front of us i love that idea about embracing uncertainty as hope as because we so often think of uncertainty purely in the negative um can you tell me a little bit about how i guess how that idea is helping you right now well i think this year you know i i i think this year i have had all kinds of um, moments of extreme kind of anxiety but even my sort of most catastrophic um thoughts even though this has been a catastrophic year um my my, my main sort of cat catastrophizing has not come to fruition in my own life you know i was petrified about my parents getting ill in uh, april and that didn't happen and various things so it's about i suppose it's just always about going back to literally today and to the things we have around us the things we have in front of us and being grateful for what we've got and trying to sort of you know accept that unknown and accept the things we do have because although this year has been horrendous and stressful in all kinds of ways so one thing i've valued is the fact that when because we've had so many things deprived 
from us, we've actually um, realized what we have and that, that value has been raised. So I think like when we, when we lose things, we actually, the value of what we've got kind of raises up. I think there are lots of people who would absolutely echo that sentiment and also the value of some of the simplicity of what we've got as well. Actually, we have been overcomplicating things for a while and yeah. going back to the simple it can make life so much easier. Um, do you think that if we are, if we better understand how we value what we have, do you think that actually this year could possibly be good for our collective mental health? Um, you know, I, I would obviously love to wave a magic wand and ha have none of this, uh, yeah. you know, the pandemic going on. I think we all would. But um, I definitely think there will be aspects of this year w that we carry with us beyond in a sort of post-COVID future. I think there'll be um, there'll be certain aspects of, of how we work that's been simpler. For instance, I'm meant to be on a very... Um, busy, stressful, around the country book tour at the moment, which would have been fun, but it would have been very time consuming, a lot of travel. I've been able to do it all um, from my living room. And in some ways, I've actually communicated with more people, done more things um, by having it done like this. So I, th I think we're learning all kinds of things. We're learning the things that we really, really do miss. And there are a lot of things we really miss. I'm really missing a nice summer holiday yeah. in Greece right now. But there'll be, there's other things, you know, we're getting a delayed or cancelled train um, into London to, to sit around a meeting where you hardly contribute anything at all. And then you go, you know, th those sort of things, you know, I'd rather do on Zoom and downstairs. So I think... We're, we're all itching to get on with normality, whatever that is. But, you know, there will be things that we, we, we want to carry on. And I think it's about simplifying. It's kind of been a, a forced minimalism that we've all had to have because we've, we've obviously had less to do and less in our lives in some way. And, and that has been good and bad um, in different ways, I think. Do you think it's had a sort of levelling impact on our society? I know we've seen some communities much harder hit by it than others, but one of the things that I've really noticed, particularly in this summer holiday period, is that I'm not experiencing the usual sort of August FOMO where I see all my friends off on amazing holidays and I'm sat in work because we're all in the pretty much stuck here in the same place, unable to go anywhere. It It's felt like actually it's taken away a level of the comparison FOMO yeah. that perhaps exists in our society anyway. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's kind of like, that has been in recent years, that's been the curse of our times, hasn't it? It's been quite internet specific yeah. relating to like, you know, Instagram going on and, and you know, you're not comparing yourself to other people's lives. It's other people's best bits <laughs> of their lives. Absolutely. We're not actually seeing the reality and I feel like there was a little bit of that in lockdown I, I feel like some people were thinking oh I'm not doing my lockdown well enough I'm not you yeah. know I'm not baking baking sourdough doing the tai chi mm -hmm. learning a foreign language there was a little bit of that we, we 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 find quite quickly ways to feel um bad about ourselves but yeah generally I I feel like because we've all had this collective experience where we might have different perspectives about it, but we've all been in the same boat to some degree. Mm. Obviously, some have been having it harder than others. Mm. Um, I think there has been that sense that, you know, we, we don't have to have 
continue your life envy because other people are having their own um, tough times and stuff like that. So probably psychologically in terms of that comparison thing, that's been a bit um, healthier mentally. I wanted to ask you actually a bit about social media because you are very active on Twitter and on Instagram. And yeah, so often we talk about some social media as something that is terrible for our mental health. You seem to have found a way to make it work in a way that is actually quite positive for mental health. How do you do that? Well, I don't always do it. I feel like, you know, I, I when it works, it, I find it very good, you know, because for me, but my when I've had depression in the past before, when I had my breakdown in my 20s, the overriding feeling um, was one of loneliness. And, you know, I was first ill um, before social media took off. So I, I, I think in some ways social media would have helped me connect with people who were going through something similar, would have made me feel a little bit less alone. And there are obviously very uh, obvious downsides to social media for mental health. You know, the Twitter, the sort of general animosity that's on Twitter, the, mm. the worrying about what you're saying or being pulled pulled apart for, for something. Um, Instagram, it's that comparison thing we've just been talking about. Um, and, you know, I'm not immune to those things, but I've I found a way to balance it. When I was first on Twitter properly about five years ago, I'd be very, very sensitive if, you know, if I said the wrong thing and then, um, you know, some, someone would criticise, I'd take it so personally and ruin the weekend. I now have a kind of distance where... I mean, if you have, if you're on the internet in any kind of prolific way, you've got any kind of number of followers, you have to be, you have to just accept. Not everyone's going to like you. Not everyone's going to like what what they say, and you, it, that doesn't really matter. You just have to stay liking yourself and not not judging yourself through the eyes of the people who don't like you the most or whatever. And um, not always easy, but yeah, I, I'm getting better at it. Also, I don't have my phone. Um, by my bed anymore because I used to be dreadful first thing in the morning of just yeah. scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. So I forced myself to have it in the kitchen when possible. And um, so I have to actually get out of bed, have some breakfast and uh, start my day like that. One of the things that you do, I think, brilliantly on social media is you sort of you create a community of people who feel very um, supported or gladdened or hope-filled by the words that you put out. Does that feel like a lot of responsibility? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like it's... I, I mean, I am generally quite um, bad at being responsible <laughs> in terms of, like, you know, for instance, when a charity has come to me in the past and said, oh, do you want to have some kind of official role or become a mental health spokesperson or ambassador or whatever i normally turn those things down because um i don't necessarily feel like i can be responsible for a charity but as i'm just talking for myself and people are responding to that um i i'm kind of fine with that the only time it's been an issue is with when people message you and often they're in a they're in a pickle, they're, they're in a sort of mental health slump, they might even be suicidal, they might even be seriously ill. And that side of it, you know, because I'm someone without 
qualifications in mental health. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a Samaritan. I've had no training. So that took a little bit of a while to know what to do in those situations and to know who to refer people to and all of that stuff. But, you know, I, I've had a lot of help from a lot of great people like Mind and the Samaritans and stuff who, who helped me with that stuff. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, the Midnight Library, Matt's new book is out now. It's, um, like I said, if you, want, if you want a hug of a book, it is a hug of a book. Matt Haig there. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. Now, imagine for a moment that you spent years training to become a job you had dreamed of since a child. You put your heart and soul into it. You worked hard at school, hard at university. You went on and did further study. And then whenever you walked into that job, people just refused to believe that you were that qualified professional you said you were. Well, that is the experience our next guest had. And she's here to tell us all about it now. I'm joined by Alexandra Wilson. Hi, Alexandra. Hello. Thank you so much for talking to us about this. So this is a story that just blew up a couple of weeks ago about your experience as a barrister in the British court system. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened? Of course. Um, A few weeks ago, I went to court to represent one of my clients in the magistrate's court and just for context in the magistrate's court we don't wear our wigs and gowns we mm-hmm. we dress in a you know a, a black business suit yeah I attended court and multiple times that day I was assumed to be the defendant when I entered the building the security officer asked for my full name to tick me off the list of defendants um, mm-hmm. I explained I wasn't there as a defendant I was a barrister when I entered the courtroom, um, another barrister or solicitor, another legal representative told me to go back outside and wait for the usher to sign in for my case. Again, I explained that just like her, I was one of uh, the barristers representing mm-hmm. a client today. And then when I was in the courtroom, I went to go and speak to the prosecutor before my case and the, the legal advisor, the court clerk, shouted at me to get out of the courtroom and again sign in with the usher and wait for my case and then asked whether I was represented today. Um, again, I had to explain for the third time to a professional in court that I was the barrister, yeah. um, which you know led me to tweeting about how upset and exhausted I was at the end of that day. And... Um- Obviously, you're on the radio, so people can't see what you look like. But you are a young black woman. You're in your mid-20s, young black woman. And essentially what's happening here is that people are looking at you and going, well, she can't possibly be a barrister. Because in our head, a barrister is, for a start, white, minimum. And then probably a bit older and probably a man. That is, I, I mean, that is to me what it sounds like is going on here. Is that what it felt like for you? Exactly that. At the end of the day, there were other... uh, solicitors and barristers walking in and out of the courtroom who were all white Mm -hmm. um, and they were not challenged at all you know some of them were younger some of them were older Mm -hmm. um, but no one else was challenged in the way that I was challenged and I think for me the the way I was treated that day is symptomatic of a much bigger issue which is the Mm -hmm. over criminalization of black people Mm -hmm. you know people see black people and assume that you must be a criminal particularly in a court setting have you had this experience before Yes, not a number of times. Mm. And, you know, one of the reasons that I tweeted about it was just because it happened so many times in one day. But this is something that, you know, I've written articles about before and spoken out about before. And so have many of my other black colleagues, you know, other black barristers, other black solicitors, even black judges and black QCs have said that, you know, 
throughout their career. I, a black judge spoke to me the other day and said, you know, even when he goes to court now and he'll go through the judicial entrance, you know, a separate entrance for judges and he'll always be challenged and mm-hmm. told, you know, you need to, you know, as, um, as, as someone who's attending court, you need to use the main entrance. And he has to justify that he is a judge despite, wow. you know, having been at the bar yeah. and then at the judge for however many years. So it's something that a lot of us have experienced for a very long time. What was the response from the people who challenged you when you said, uh, no, hang on, I'm here in my professional capacity? It was actually a mix. So the, the security officer did apologise. Mm. Um, he apologised straight away. But both the solicitor or barrister yeah. um, and the, the court clerk, both of them looked very awkward and yeah. you know looked away but there was no apology there was no acknowledgement for the fact that they'd made that assumption I'm sure they probably were a bit embarrassed mm-hmm. um but there was no recognition of what had gone wrong um and and that can make it more difficult as well because yeah. it makes you feel slightly awkward and off you yeah. know and as when when really you're just mm-hmm. there to do your job yeah do you think this is a problem within the profession do you think there's a level of kind of conscious or unconscious bias going on here within the profession I think that the profession certainly isn't representative of society yet Mm. and I do think that that plays into uh, my experience and the experience of many others I think Mm. that you know at the moment although the junior end of our profession is getting better it's getting more representative and that's on you know the gender front and the race front um the the senior end of the profession definitely isn't representative enough yet um we don't have enough we don't retain women or ethnic minorities frankly mm-hmm. so yeah. you know you look at qcs and judges i think both for you know there were about one percent of qcs are black or about one percent of judges are black mm-hmm. and when you look at women you know women also drop off in huge numbers as we get to the qc and, ju- and judiciary level um so i do think the profession has got some work to do in terms of becoming more representative. But saying that, I think one thing that I can say is when I spoke out about my experience, Mm. uh, the vast majority of people in my profession were actually very supportive and, you know, very senior people in the profession, the head of the bar council reached out on both a personal level, but also got in contact with the court service to address it. So I, I am hopeful for things to actually move forward and change. I think it's people are listening and, It, it does sometimes take, you know, people speaking about their personal experiences mm. um, for these sort of things to be highlighted. And I'm glad it's being taken seriously by the profession. Mm. You talked earlier about how actually this is is linked to the overcriminalization of black people. For anyone who doesn't really understand what that means, can you tell us? Of course. Um, so the overcriminalization of black people essentially is black people being forced into the criminal justice system at a disproportionate rate to white people. And so that can be seen right from, you know, street level policing. The Met, the Met Police, um, their statistics show that black people are stopped and searched at a much higher rate than their white counterparts. So it's 38 per 1,000 black people versus mm-hmm. just four per 1,000 white people. Wow. So 
you know, that, that that's almost 10 times yeah. as many stops and searches for black people. So even from street level policing, black people are being over-policed, yeah. which means that when you then go to the magistrate's court, there are going to be a higher proportion of black people because mm-hmm. more people are being arrested and charged, even if they don't ever actually get convicted. Yeah. You're pushing people into a system. And so people are seeing proportionally more black people on the defendant side in courts. And then those sort of trends are apparent later on so you know black people receive harsher sentences than white people and that's on the ministry of justice's own reports that's not just anecdotal Mm. you know black people are overrepresented in prisons i think 12 percent of the prison population is black even though black people make up just under four percent of the population um so you know these problems start on the street level um, yeah. And they filter through the whole system. And it's it's the, the biggest issue here is that a lot of the ideas that we have as a I know some people call it unconscious bias. But mm-hmm. ultimately, I think that we can't use that as an excuse anymore. Yeah. A lot of the ideas that we have about what black people are like and some of the cultural mm. attributes are being criminalized. So, mm. for example, I know Amnesty International, the big charity, did a report on the Metropolitan Police so it's gang matrix and that's basically a database where they 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 highlight you know who they believe to be in gangs in london and on that matrix 78% of the people on their database were black 78% wow. that's a huge number and of course massively disproportionate to the black population and when the amnesty international did their report on it they they showed that actually a lot of the the factors that they were t- the police were taking into consideration were actually just cultural ind- indicators like cultural factors associated with black people and so until we tackle those sort of things, black people are going to continue to be over criminalized. They're going to continue to be stopped and searched at disproportionate rates and then fed through the system at a disproportionate rate, which is going to result in things like my experience where, mm-hmm. you know, you see a black person and you assume that they must be a defendant. Yeah. And what impact do you think that has on the black community's view of the judicial system? I think it leads to a breakdown in trust um, and reinforces that lack, that that lack of trust and that can be really difficult because actually that can be very detrimental you know if because i personally have experienced you know where clients feel that barristers or you know solicitors people who are on their side are part of the establishment and part of yeah. a system they don't trust and so then when we're trying to give them advice and and you know give them advice that's in their best interest which might sometimes be for example pleading guilty at an early opportunity where they might receive some credit a discount on their sentence Mm. often they won't trust us in that decision because they have such a lack of trust for the establishment and that can be you know that can be adverse to their their own interests and it can mean that actually they might end up with a longer sentence or they might end up going further along the process incurring costs in some cases um, because there's a real breakdown of trust, it can also create, you know, hostile tensions in the community with community policing. Um, so there are huge drawbacks to to this over policing, over criminalisation of black people. Um, and that's why I think it's actually it's it should be a huge priority to start addressing these things. And I'm glad that now these things are being talked about um, in a way that's, you know, more than before, to be honest. They're being Absolutely. spoken about much more than before. I'm really glad they are too and thank you for sharing your story I think it you know what you're describing there Alexandra is a just obviously 
unacceptable. But also, it's a daily reality. And if we don't explain and say it's a daily reality, it's going to keep going on and we really need to get to the end of it. So thank you so much for sharing it and for coming thank on today. Thank you for having me. Alexandra Wilson there. You can find her at Essex Barrister on social media, talking about her experiences being being a black barrister in the legal profession. Just a brilliant example there of actually why when people start to say, do you know what, this is not okay, right now appears to be a time when hopefully as white people we are listening and maybe that might affect some change, which would be good for all of us. You've been listening to Badass Women's Hour. If you like the show, then help more people find us. You can tag us or talk to us on social media using at Badass Women's Hour. Or you can be really lovely and leave us a review and a rating. Five stars, please. It helps boost us up the podcast rankings and allows other people to find us. We'll be back next week with more Badass Guests and in-depth chat. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.